Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Wine mixed with myrrh was basically an analgesic. It was a painkiller. And notice Jesus refused it. Why? He didn't want anything to mask the pain that he experienced for you and me. Isn't that amazing? He would not do this in any quick or easy way. He would do this completely and entirely and experience the full measure of pain for you and for me. So he refused it. Now there's later in in the Gospels, it talks about how he thirsts. He's going to take something for thirst, but nothing for pain. Have you ever really let yourself think about the intense pain that Jesus endured on the cross? The nails in his hands and feet, the wood scraping against the already raw skin of his back, thorns pressing into his head. He fought for every gasping breath, and he endured this intense agony for hours. And as Pastor Gary will share today, Jesus refused anything that would dull the pain. Why would he do this? For you. Jesus loves you enough to have endured the cross to conquer the enemy, saving you from the same pain. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 15, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's dive right in. Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Mark. We're going to close out the Gospel of Mark tonight. We're going to be in uh, chapter 15 as we finish out chapters 15 and 16 this evening. It's Mark chapter 15. Well, we left off uh, in chapter 15, right around verse 15, where uh, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, has just sentenced Jesus to death. Pilate was considered historically to be someone who was pretty brutal. So you, he's been warned by Rome. He tells us you can see his reluctance in this passage. He doesn't really want to crucify Jesus. And so he does everything he can really to avoid having to make this decision. He even gets a warning from his wife because she's been warned in a dream. So she, tries, she sends a note to Pontius Pilate. He wrestles with that. He, he realizes Jesus is a Galilean, so he sends him to Herod. Maybe Herod will make the decision for me. Herod kicks him back to Pilate. I mean, Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Finally, he turns to the crowd and he says, well, you know what? There's a tradition around Passover. I release a prisoner in exchange for another. Maybe you would want to, you know, take Jesus. I'll just release him back to you. No, no, no. Instead, they want Barabbas. And so he, he gives the people Barabbas and he sentences Jesus to crucifixion. Now, this is going to be a mark against him, historically, and he, he's a guy who will crucify and execute a lot of people, so much so that four years later, after 
the crucifixion of Jesus, history tells us that Pontius Pilate is recalled to Rome by the emperor, by Caesar, for his brutality. So four years later, after this scene, Pontius Pilate will be recalled to Rome, and Eusebius, the fourth century historian, tells us that Pontius Pilate will then commit suicide. And no doubt, probably the guilt of sentencing Jesus to death played a role in his own despair that led to his own suicide. Well, Pontius Pilate sentences him to death, and in verse 15, it says, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So Jesus is now in the hands of the Roman government. The Jews no longer control things. Uh, The Romans do. And he's been officially sentenced to death. What's the charge? Well, a bunch of lies uh, were were perpetrated here. And the bottom line is that Pontius Pilate is going to go with basically sedition against the Roman Empire. Because Jesus claims to be king of the Jews. Well, there can only be one king, and it's going to be Caesar. So if you're going to say that, then we're going to put you to death. It, it, and, and Pontius Pilate knows that this isn't you know, legitimate, but yet the, the crowd here, and he's wanting to satisfy the people. So he, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And verse 16 says that the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. So this just a total scene of mocking him. That's all this is about. They're, you know, they're just mocking him. This whole thing with a crown of thorns. Oh, we're going to pretend you're, you're a king here and the purple robe and, and this whole deal. And, and yet and they're, they're being brutal towards him. They, they've all, they're, they're flogging him. They're, they're hitting him with the staff. They're mocking him. They're, called, they're saying, hail king of, the Jews, king of the Jews. They're even falling on their knees like, like, like they're honoring him. The whole thing is just... This farce, and it's humiliating what a mockery it is. And then they, they take off the purple robe. Okay, charade is over, and they're going to lead him off in his own clothes now to be crucified. And they flog him before he is actually nailed to a cross. Now, most criminals, and I don't use that term to apply to Jesus because we know that he's innocent, but in, in this system of, of this kind of a justice, most criminals would die at this place here. Because a criminal who was convicted of crucifixion would first be flogged. They would receive lashings by two Roman soldiers. They were called lictors. And they would take turns. They would tie the criminal uh, to a post, an upright post. The criminal would be stripped naked. And then there would be two Roman soldiers called lictors. And they would each take turns. One throwing the whip. And then the next one throwing the whip. And then the next one. And the Romans had perfected this, if you can use that word for such a brutal experience here. Their whips were short little whips. They were called flagellums, and they had kind of long tails of leather. And on the end of the tails of leather were tied either pieces of lead or shards of sheep bone. So that every time someone was whipped, the lead or the sheep bone would just be like claws and would just rip the flesh off of people. Most people died and bled to death 
from the whipping that they received even before they were crucified. So Jesus has now been horribly flogged. And, you know, not to get too graphic, but, you, you know, you have to imagine as, as his, you know, probably down to the bone. You can probably see his ribs at this point. He's already been beaten by the, the Jewish Sanhedrin. And now he's been beaten by the Romans here. He's so disfigured, Isaiah 52 says that he was beyond recognition. You wouldn't have recognized him if you had known him. His face was that swollen, that marred. Beard plucked out, Isaiah says. The hair in his head plucked out. I mean, this, this kind of horrible treatment here is leaving Jesus now uh, very weak, very tired, uh, already uh, pretty much dehydrated. And now he has to carry his cross to the scene of the crucifixion. So what happens is because he's under such duress and he's so weak, they're going to call a man from the crowd to help carry the cross. And that's what the next verse says. Verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, and that is Libya, so, so that this is northern, northern Africa. His name was Simon. And Mark adds here that he's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. Mark is the only one of the gospel writers who mentions his sons by name. Uh, Matthew and Luke also mention Simon's name, but they don't talk about his sons. Mark does. This, this is a dad here. This is a common bystander who's, who's no doubt come to Jerusalem for the feasts because there were Jews from all over the known world at the time. So he's come from northern Africa. He's a part of the Passover feast here. He was just passing by on his way in from the country. And they, that is the Romans, forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And so this place has been traditionally called Golgotha. So that is the word in Aramaic that means the skull, because this, this outcropping of rocks looks like a skull. And this was a traditional place of crucifixion by the Romans. Now, just so that you know the different words related to this scene, so skull in Aramaic, which was the, the general language of the Jews in the time of Jesus, not Hebrew, the scriptures were written in Hebrew, Hebrew would be revived as an ancient language in more modern times in the late 1800s and early 1900s by the Zionist movement, but in Jesus' day, Hebrew was not spoken, it was Aramaic. Aramaic was a kind of a combination of Hebrew and ancient Chaldean. When the Jews were taken off to Babylonia in captivity in ancient Iraq, their Hebrew language got mixed with the Chaldean language of the people, and it became known more as like Aramaic, kind of an ancient Syriac language. And so that was really the language of Jesus' day. So Golgotha is the Aramaic word for skull in Greek. So if you look at your New Testaments, and which are written originally in Greek, uh, the Greek word is um, cranion. We get our English word cranium, your noggin, from that Greek word. And in Latin, the word is, and V's in Latin are pronounced like a W, the, the word is calvarium, which in English translates as Calvary. So when we talk about Calvary, that is just adopted from the Latin word that means the place of the skull. Same words, all of these words, Golgotha, Cranion, Calvarium, they all mean the same thing, the skull, because this place looked like the skull, and this was the site of the crucifixion. And so it says here in verse 20, and by the way, we don't know this definitively, but this is, this is the traditional site of the crucifixion here uh, because of the place that looks like the skull. Well, verse 23 says, and then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, wine mixed with myrrh was basically an analgesic. 
It was a painkiller. And notice Jesus refused it. Why? He didn't want anything to mask the pain that he experienced for you and me. Isn't that amazing? He would not do this in any quick or easy way. He would do this completely and entirely and experience the full measure of pain for you and for me. So he refused it. Now there's later in in the Gospels, it talks about how he thirsts. He's going to take something for thirst, but nothing for pain. So verse 24, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Now that's 9 a.m. because the, the day basically was counted by sunrise And so basically 6 a.m. was considered the first hour. So by the third hour, we're talking 9 a.m. So 9 a.m., he's nailed to the cross. And written, verse 26, written, the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Luke tells us, Mark doesn't, but when you, again, the beauty of the four Gospels is you get four different angles. They don't contradict each other. The four Gospels complement each other. So what one Gospel doesn't say, you can get from another. So Luke tells us that one of the thieves repented and asked God for mercy, and the Lord gave him mercy and promised him that this day you will be with me in paradise. So of the two, you have the, these two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. One of them ends up coming under conviction and turns to Christ, Luke tells us. And verse 29 says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Again, they did at least to a point until one came under conviction. So, you know, imagine this scene. Again, look, you know, I know, and I referred to this last week, if you saw Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ movie, you get a rendering, a version of what things might have looked like. Notice, if you will, that some of these intense details are left out. The details of the act of crucifixion. The ancient Persians were the first ones to practice crucifixion. But the Romans really got it down to a science. And they, they wanted crucifixion to be a deterrent to crime. So that's why people were crucified along a road. And as it related to Jerusalem, particularly near a main entrance. So that as you're, as you're coming in, as, you know, just somebody as a, making a journey to Jerusalem for whatever reason, and you see a few people hanging on a cross that the Romans have put there, you probably aren't going to commit too many crimes that day, all right? So it's a natural deterrent to crime. But the excruciating element of crucifixion is horrific, and it's as if God is saying to us, I, I don't need you to know all those details. What I need you to simply know is my son died for you. My son died for you. Now, it makes interesting reading. If you, if you Google, you can Google 1986 JAMA report, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And an MD, a doctor, wrote, and it was published by JAMA in 1986. You can go home and Google it. The doctor's name is Dr. William Edwards. And Dr. Edwards wrote from a medical scientific standpoint what crucifixion was ultimately like. If you're interested in that kind of thing and you don't have a weak stomach, you can go home and Google that and read that kind of thing. 
and man, it's an eye-opener to the amount of pain and agony and how horrible crucifixion was. But again, God simply wants us to know the main point and not all the details about you know, driving the nails and, and all, of that, all the, that he experienced. He just simply wants us to know, listen, my son, Jesus Christ, died for the sins of the world. It was horrible. It was horrific. But you don't need to know necessarily all the details. You just need to know one, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is a universal invitation. Jesus did not die for a select few. Jesus died for the world, for all who would believe and receive. And that invitation is available for anyone to put their faith in Christ, to believe in Him as Lord and Savior because of what He did for us. We didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. God did it by His love for us, made a decision from the foundation of the world that His Son should be crucified The lamb that was perfect was slain for your sins and my sins. Everything you've ever done and shall do, every thought you've ever had that was wicked and evil and shall have, every imaginable act of human wickedness was paid for by Jesus on the cross. Isn't that amazing? So it says in verse verse 33, rather, that at the sixth hour, now this is 12 noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, He's quoting here from Psalm 22, and he is basically interpreting the darkness. He's nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. At 12 noon to 3 p.m., darkness comes over the whole land. So there's, you know, whether it's a solar eclipse, I don't know, but, but it's dark enough that it is describable. In this darkness, you know, imagine Jesus hanging there on the cross completely alone, and he is interpreting really the darkness. He's talking about here the cup of God's wrath, the inevitable consequences of unforgiveness is outer darkness. And he is describing that, and he's quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus is bearing the sins of the world, there is this moment, it is this It is this difficult thing for us to comprehend, but there's this moment in time when Jesus is bearing the sins of the world and the repulse of that sin is obnoxious to God and yet God never abandons the Son and Jesus pays the price in full, but yet He expresses this, this, um, the consequence of sin that He's bearing for the sins of the world. Not that He committed any sin, but that He's bearing your sin and my sin And he describes it by quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, that incredible loneliness of this moment and in the darkness. Well, it says then further that in verse 35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last Verse 38 says, the curtain, now this is an interesting thing here because the scene is the crucifixion scene just on the outskirts of the old city, but now Mark is switching to something that's happening inside the old city of Jerusalem in the temple itself. And this is what he writes, the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
and this is important wording here, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. So there's, there's kind of a breakaway. You know when you go to the movies and you, and you see a scene, and then there's a breakaway scene, and then it comes back to the original scene. So the original scene here is the site of the crucifixion, but then there's this brief breakaway, and Mark describes something happening in the temple. And what he tells us is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now what curtain? In the temple of Jerusalem, there was a curtain that separated two chambers within the temple. One chamber was called the holy place, And then there was this interior chamber called the most holy place, or also called the holy of holies. And separating the two was this gigantic curtain. Now, one of my favorite Bible commentaries for you guys who like to study through the Bible is a guy by the name of A.T. Robertson. And Robertson describes uh, from historical accounts that the curtain of the temple would have measured 60 feet from top to bottom taking into account the dimensions of the, of the temple itself, and 30 feet from left to right. And that it was woven primarily out of goat hair, and the Bible gives this description about the curtain, uh, with, with cherubim, a part of being woven into the curtain, uh, these, these angelic creatures, and that the thickness of the curtain was the thickness of a man's hand. And basically a man's hand from pinky to thumb is about 9 to 10 inches. Stretched out, about 9 to 10 inches. So you have a 60-foot curtain, height, 30 feet in width, and the width, of a man's, the width of a man's hand, the fabric was the width of a man's hand. And this is that curtain by which the high priest would pass once a year, only once a year, the high priest would pass around the curtain to go to the most holy place with the blood of the animal to make sacrifice for the whole people of Israel. It was the most holy day. It was the day of atonement called Yom Kippur. They still call it Yom Kippur today on the Jewish calendar. And that was the only time once a year high priest could pass around the the curtain. And boy, it was a sacred thing. You did not go in with sin on your heart. In fact, tradition says, we don't know this from the Bible, tradition says that they would put a rope around the high priest's ankle because you couldn't go in after him because the the mercy seat was there. The, The Shekinah glory of God was there. And if you mess with God, you may not come out. And so tradition says that the high priest would go in with a rope tied around his ankle. So when he'd get on the other side of the curtain, if he had done anything in his life and God chose to strike him dead, you could pull him back out. That's why they would put a rope around his ankle. Because you couldn't go in after his body. If you heard a big thump, boom, looks like he didn't pay his taxes. Let's go ahead and you know, pull the guy back out or whatever the deal is. That was a sacred and and a special day once a year. Now, what is God saying by this cutaway scene? The moment of Jesus' crucifixion, the moment that he dies, the curtain of that temple split, not bottom to top, top to bottom. Why is that important? Because if it started from the bottom and went up, somebody could say that a person did that. A couple of priests got together and they just yanked it from the bottom until they tore the whole thing. No, no, no. This started at the top and went down. (sighs) Because God was saying, now, you don't have to get to me through a priest. You don't have to get to me through a man. Because the God-man, as Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man. Paul writes to Timothy, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Because Jesus dies on the cross. Now, guess what? We get to go to the Father through Jesus. 
your new life. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know